Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 900. On this week's show, we start off by honoring Dick Allen. Jay Jaffe is joined by Shakia Taylor to discuss the late Slugger and its legacy, including an unfair reputation that has overshadowed his remarkable talent. Allen's career in the 60s and 70s included a number of challenges based on race, from fan vitriol to simply getting the media to call him by his name. I really appreciate that about him. His take charge, you will call me by my name. And not to like go off in left field, but it really pissed me off when people were tweeting about his passing and calling him Richie. Oh, I believe you. <laughs> he clearly did not want to be called that. And if you connect those dots, just call the man by his name. <laughs> like, it's not hard. Following that, David Lorela is joined by Glenn Williams, the general manager of Team Australia, to talk about baseball down under. They go over Glenn's own professional career, including a major league record he holds, as well as how famous Liam Hendricks is in Australia. We also get a preview of the upcoming Australian Baseball League season, which starts next week and can be watched online. You know, the ABL is different. So over a 24-man roster, there might be a, you know, like a 17-year-old kid who has just committed to going to a college who's there playing on the team with Delman Young, who, you know, is a 10-year major league veteran who can come down and, and kind of dominate the league. Finally, Eric Longenhagen is joined by old friend Kylie McDaniel to catch up on recent happenings. Kylie tells us a bit about what he's been up to before the pair discuss things like the Rule 5 draft and the Phillies hiring Dave Dombrowski. Eric and Kylie also spend some time trying to figure out what the deal is with the Nate Lowe trade. I guess if you were to take my last couple tweets about Texas and teasing articles where I wrote about Texas, it was basically that them and Colorado are the two teams where I don't know what they're doing. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. We could not do this without you, and we are endlessly grateful. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. Dick Allen passed away earlier this week at the age of 78. The timing of his death was a particular gut punch as it came the day after he would have been considered as a candidate on the Golden Days Era Committee ballot for election to the Hall of Fame and at a time when there was considerable optimism about his potential for election. Allen, whose major league career spanned from 1963 to 1977 and was spent primarily with the Phillies and the White Sox, was one of the heaviest hitters of his time. He made seven All-Star teams, won NL Rookie of the Year with the Phillies in 1964, and AL Most Valuable Player with the White Sox in 1972. He led his league in home runs twice and an OPS plus three times while ranking among his league's top ten in the latter category in all ten seasons in which he had enough plate appearances to qualify. His career 156 OPS plus matches those of Willie Mays and Frank Thomas, tied for 14th among players with at least 7,000 plate appearances, but he had far less playing time than either of those two due to his short career. The comparative brevity of that career and his failure to reach even the 2,000 hit and 400 home run milestones and the fact that he walked a lot and played in a pitcher-friendly era when his 30 or 40 home runs had an even greater impact than they would have today made it easier for him to be overlooked in that context. That's particularly so given the numerous controversies that enveloped Allen's career, especially in Philadelphia, where he played from late 1963 through 1969 and then again in 1975 and 76. Both the team, which was the NL's last to integrate in 1957, and the city, which in 1964 experienced race riots that were connected to police brutality, were well behind the integration curve, and it didn't help that the sports writers who covered him were all white, middle-aged, and largely uninterested in bridging the gap to Allen and meeting him on his own terms. That included his desire to be called Dick Allen instead of Richie. 
Richie makes me sound like I'm 10 years old, he said near the end of the 1964 season. I'm 22. Anyone who knows me well calls me Dick. I don't know why as soon as I put on a uniform, it's Richie. Allen could be a handful. He brawled with teammate Frank Thomas, not to be confused with the Hall of Fame slugger for the White Sox, declared a sit-down strike, missed flights, and took to drinking before games in an attempt to coax a trade. His exploits drew exasperation from the white media at the time, as well as the team, and he was treated unsympathetically. The Philly slugger has a million dollars worth of talent and ten cents worth of ability to understand what his role is with a team that has 24 other players besides himself, wrote the Sporting News in 1969. Allen was traded three times in three off-seasons, quickly passing through St. Louis, a deal in which Kurt Flood was on the other end and refused to report, setting in motion the events that led to his challenge of the reserve clause and ultimately to free agency, and Los Angeles before landing in Chicago. While he won MVP honors in 1972 and led the league in homers and slugging percentage twice apiece while in Chicago, he played just 200 games in 1973 and 74 due to injuries and announced his retirement in the process, though he did return the next season to the Phillies. When Allen retired, BBWA voters barely gave him the time of day. He got just 3.7% on the 1983 ballot, meaning that he lost his eligibility. But two years later, he was one of 11 players given a second chance. He scraped by with 7.1% of the vote and remained on the ballot through 1997, though he never reached 20, even 20% of the vote. He was largely ignored by the expanded Veterans Committee in his four chances from 2003 through 2009, left off the Golden Era Committee ballot in 2012 when contemporary Ron Santo, who also got that second chance in 1985, was elected, and he fell one vote short in 2015 when that era's slate came up for election again. A change in the era committee format meant that he wouldn't be considered again until this year on the 2021 Golden Days ballot. Particularly after last year's modern baseball era committee elected Ted Simmons and Marvin Miller, both of whom had fallen exactly one vote short in a previous attempt, there was optimism that this would be Allen's year. Though as before, the competition would have been fierce since presumably Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Maury Wills, and Gil Hodges were all on the slate as well, with Oliva and Hodges having fallen one vote short in the past themselves and caught two short. Still, the buzz had been building around Allen, with a slew of articles about him over the past several months and increasing attention paid to his plight in light of the national conversation about race in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the demonstrations that followed. Unfortunately, the coronavirus pandemic led the hall to postpone the election, and while the ailing Allen did get to enjoy the tributes paid to him when the Phillies retired his number in September, it is utterly heartbreaking that he didn't live long enough to see his election. I'm 50 years old and started watching baseball around 1978, so I just missed seeing the tail end of Dick Allen's career. I knew him first as a baseball card, receiving a few Allens and what must have been over 2,000 cards handed down by my cousin, also named Allen, who's about six years older than me. I understood him as a player who was a contemporary of many of the stars I was watching whose careers extended into the 80s, guys like Reggie Jackson. The way he looked in Chicago, with his glasses and sideburns and his mustache, reminded me of Reggie. Even then, I was struck by the duality of his name, cards that called him Richie and cards that called him Dick. I didn't know the story behind the name change, but I knew that my own father, born Richard Jaffe, generally went by Dick except to his parents. My grandmother called him Richard, my grandfather called him Rich, so I took it as more of an interchangeability rather than a struggle for self-definition. Allen's advanced statistics, which adjust for the conditions under which he played, make a strong case that he belongs in the Hall of Fame despite the brevity of his career. When I was writing about him for my book, The Cooperstown Casebook, and researching the ups and downs of his career, I learned that Chuck Tanner, who had managed him in Chicago and connected with him well because they were both from the same part of Pennsylvania, tried to coax him to join the Pirates in 1979, a team I followed closely and rooted for as they won the World Series that year. I was like, no, they just missed him! 
Now I'd like to bring in Shakia Taylor, who wrote about Allen during her 2018 residency at Fangraphs and who has written about many other black ball players and about race and baseball at places such as the Hardball Times, Baseball Prospectus, and lately MLB.com. Her baseball prospectus piece on Tim Anderson, called Loss for Words, was a finalist for the 2020 Sabre Analytics Conference's Award for Contemporary Baseball Commentary. Shakia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a delight to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> You're younger than I am, and if I understand your history, it wasn't until 2016 that you started writing about baseball. Correct. I'm interested in how you came to learn about Alan. Well, I would say I've always been interested in the history of baseball, even when I wasn't writing about it. Right. And the Dick Allen piece, I was trying to just think of things that I wanted to write about that weren't being explored. And a friend of mine actually suggested that I write about Dick Allen. It was just kind of out of nowhere. I was racking my brain like, what's going to be interesting? What hasn't been really talked about from my perspective? And Dick Allen was it. Interesting. I, I I wondered. I know you're you're from Ohio originally, mm-hmm. but you live in Chicago now. If there was any kind of like family connection, if you had, you know, parents or relatives that 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 had seen Alan in that time and could relate anything to you about, about his career. Well, it's funny. I've lived in Chicago for 20 years now, and my great uncle, which was my grandmother's sister's husband has lived in Chicago since the 50s. And he was just a Chicago sports fan in general. So there were conversations amongst my family over the years about, you know, different things happening in various sports. So Dick Allen had come up, but wasn't a name that I would say stuck with me. There's also a mural of Dick Allen by Comiskey. Yes, I still call it Comiskey. Sure. And and so when you see the artwork, you start to wonder, you know, like, what's his story? He looks so cool with the Afro and the aviators. And then you find out that there was a lot more to this person. And my family, having been a part of the Great Migration from Mississippi to the North in various states, you know, they have their own stories and they always talked about athletics with regard to race because it was a mirror of what they were experiencing themselves. So Dick Allen fits right in there. All right. Well, that, that helps to explain it for me. And yeah, I mean, even, you know, he looked cool. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I mean, he looked cool and that was, that was always what made me uh, interested in, in, in Alan, especially because he looked like Reggie Jackson to a, to a 10 year old or whatever. <laughs> and Reggie Jackson was like just so larger than life when I, when I was a kid because of when I came to baseball. So in that, in that Alan piece that you wrote for Fangraphs in 2018, you linked to a Chicago Tribune piece by Phil Rosenthal that I'd never seen before. And Rosenthal cites Sports Illustrated's Roy Blunt Jr. Uh, as having written a passage uh, in 1973 that really caught my eye. And I quote, Allen was the first black man and indeed the only contemporary man of color to assert himself in baseball with something like the unaccommodating force of Muhammad Ali in boxing, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in basketball, and Jim Brown in football. And uh, just as as an aside, Rosenthal transcribed it as James Brown, which is a very different person in this context than than Jim (laughs) Brown. Uh, I got a chuckle out of that, which is what sent me back to, to find the original passage here. But I don't think I'd ever heard Dick Allen's name placed on that tier. And I find it notable within that context that both Ali and Abdul-Jabbar changed their names and battled to be recognized under their new names. I mean, we know the, the Muhammad Ali that, you know, in boxing, the say my name, you know, kicking opponents ass because they were still calling him Cassius Clay. 
Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know, do you connect Alan's efforts to, to, to go by Dick instead of Richard? Do you connect that to the context of, of Ali and, and Kareem? I had it before, but I can see how one can make that connection. If you look at things that Dick Allen experienced, he was always fighting for his own identity. You know, he, from being called slurs, and I, I think it's important to be called what you want to be called. And if he he felt his name was the one thing that belonged to him. And I think that is right on target with Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, even though their reasons were a little different, right? They changed right. their names due to the change in their religious beliefs. Dick Allen was just asserting himself as a man, as a person. And in the era in which he played, it wasn't uncommon to call a grown man boy. And he related being called Richie to being treated like a child. And I think that is something that is critical in who he was as a player. He was very adamant that you call him by his name, that you call him what he wanted to be called and that you just kind of take him for who he was. And I think that came off as combative to some people when in reality, it's like, If you come across someone who doesn't want to use your name correctly, that is upsetting. I say that as someone named Shakia, who Mm -hmm. I I meet people all the time who immediately want to ask me if I have a nickname. And it's like, no, you'll call me by my name and you'll say it correctly. And I really appreciate that about him. His take charge, you will call me by my name. And not to like go off and let feel, but it really pissed me off when people were tweeting about his passing and calling him Richie. Oh, I believe you. <laughs> he clearly did not want to be called that. And if you connect those dots, just call the man by his name. <laughs> like it's not hard. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and and yeah, there were tweets to calling him Richie that, that, that set me off as well the other day. And, and I think just drove me even harder to, to, to try to, you know, set the record straight and explain the context of it. And I think that's probably led to the path of, 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 of this conversation here. One more thing about that Roy Blunt Jr. quote. Do you think Alan belongs on that tier? I mean, you know, Ali is, you know, one of the greatest boxers of all time. Kareem, one of the all-time greats in basketball and, and Jim Brown in football. Do you, do you think that, that Alan belongs on that level in terms of and maybe not just just like overall prowess, but you know, an accomplishment, but just in the public consciousness of of of, of black athletes from that time. Well, that I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Dick Allen is at that level as far as like an iconic black athlete. You know, right. I wouldn't say that he's the name for like Ali. When you think boxing, Ali immediately comes to mind, and when you think great basketball players, Abdul Jabbar immediately comes to mind. Right, like. I don't think there is a connection between baseball professionally and Dick Allen in the way that there are, is a connection with the other men's names and their sports. But I also think maybe a part of that is a problem that Dick Allen had nothing to do with. Right. For a certain time, and maybe even today, there's been a certain level of gatekeeping with regard to baseball specifically. And not baseball in just Major League Baseball terms, but baseball in general. It's viewed as a white sport. And so that will automatically push his name down in history. And then when you look at the way the sport has been covered over the years and how 
black players face backlash from journalists, not from fans, from journalists for sticking up for themselves, for asserting themselves in issues of social justice. It's an uphill battle already. So when you factor in all of those things, like I don't think Dick Allen ever had a chance to even become an elevated name in the sport like the other names listed there. But I do think it is important that he be named. So much of Black sports history with regard to baseball is suppressed. It's it's tamped down. And then when you hear about it, it's watered down. I would imagine there's stories about Dick Allen out there that we don't even know that we won't even hear because the journalists who we hear from are typically white. And we all know if someone views a player as having an attitude, there goes their career. Right. Oh, I'm going to get to that in a second here. The one thing I wanted to, one thing I wanted to point out and realizing and thinking about it for a moment here while listening to your answer, is that when Blunt wrote this in, in, in 1973, this was when Dick Allen was really kind of at that peak, you know, where he was the, he was the reigning MVP and, you know, he was only, you know, 31 years old at the time. I, I think there was probably a presumption that, that he was still ascending in some way, that he had, you know, a long career still ahead of him, when in fact, you know, he never played more than 128 games in a season again and had a lot of injuries and, and, and other issues that would shorten his career. So, you know, maybe it's maybe it's unfair to to go back to judge that uh, his placement in that context. You know, because we didn't, they, you know, by that by 1973, Ali and Abdul Jabbar and Jim Brown, their legacies are already you know pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Whereas his wasn't wasn't quite there. But um, you know, getting getting back to to what you just said, I mentioned this when we were doing the Winter Meetings Cocktail Hour a couple nights ago. In the epilogue to Crash, uh, his 1989 autobiography, uh, there's a passage from co-author Tim Whitaker. Uh, that really stood out to me, and I only alluded to it in, in, in that conversation, but I want to I read it now here. Let me just get the book out here. After spending time with Dick, I began to reassess the sports writing profession I had once romanticized. In going over the clips of his career, I found the kind of vitriolic prose usually reserved for perpetrators of the worst kind of violent crime. One Philadelphia writer, and here I'll say his name, Alan Lewis, Philadelphia Inquirer, comes up a lot in the retrograde assessments of Dick Allen's career, called Dick, quote, a con man with muscles. Another name labeled him a schizophrenic, and yet another felt free to satirize his diet, calling it, quote, equally divided between imported and domestic. The attacks were venal and belittling, and with rare exception, bereft of an understanding of the inherent complexities of Dick's personality. Do you get a similar impression of, of, I mean, that's pretty, those are pretty strong words from, from Whitaker. Do you get a similar impression in researching Alan? And, you know, can you find parallels either historically or more contemporary uh, in the way he was covered? I mean, the guy was called divisive. <laughs> there wasn't, to me, in the things that I found, there wasn't too much positive said about Dick Allen as a person. Now, mm. you know, there were obviously there's obviously commentary on, you know, his game, but as a person, he seemed to confound people. And instead of looking to try to understand that he was culturally different, it just became like a, let's pick at him. Let's, let's dig into, you know, his, his differences. And I don't know, the, the bad attitude comments and, you know, they, those shaped how he was seen. I can't imagine how, you know, his reputation was perceived. I wasn't alive then, as you said, <laughs> right. but like his his reputation is sort of 
perceived as being extremely negative. And even the fight that he was in, you know, he was made out to be a bad guy for that, when in reality, he was defending himself. You reach a point with racism where you want to fight. Sometimes, and many will agree with me, violence is in fact the answer. <laughs> and 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 I think that was what threw people off about Dick Allen. He didn't back down. And I appreciate that he didn't really go after journalists who said stuff about him. He just opted to continue to be himself, which was probably, you know, detrimental to his mental health. But he suffered a lot of mistreatment. And I, I just can't imagine how that all got into his head or into his heart and how he felt even post playing career, he wasn't appreciated for who he was. He was still talked about as like this bad guy. That is just mind blowing to me and really upsetting. Yeah, I hear you. And I, and, and, you know, I see a certain, uh, you know, a certain culpability there with, you know, this brings me to my my next little question and opportunity for reflection here is that the reactionary treatment of Allen really did spill over into the sabermetric community when Bill James wrote in his book about the Hall of Fame, The Politics of Glory, that Allen, quote, did more to keep his teams from winning than anybody else who ever played Major League Baseball. And if that's a Hall of Famer, I'm a lug nut. Wow, that is a strong statement. And you know, in his 2001 historical baseball abstract, Allen, I mean, uh, James wrote that Allen's talent was the equal of Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Joe DiMaggio, and that for three or four years he was as good as anybody, but that he, quote, lost half his career or more to immaturity and emotional stability. And again, you know, I this is, looking back at this, this is like cringeworthy stuff. And I have to admit that, you know, in 2002, I got publicly scolded for parroting that line about Alan, the lug nut line, mm -hmm. on the Baseball Think Factory message board by a sabermetrician named Don Malcolm. And, you know, he called that line from James the absolute nadir of his career and really led me to read that Craig Wright piece where Wright, who was an early sabermetrician, goes back and talks to Chuck Tanner and... Gene Mock and, and all of the other managers who, who oversaw Allen and really kind of sets the record straight. Like they were like, no, I didn't, my problems weren't with Dick Allen. My problems were with, you know, the horseshit 24 other ball players I had or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think kind of, you know, led, led to a reassessment and, you know, my own, you know, uh, ass kicking and deserved, you know, was, was, this was before I was really a hall of, you know, had really done a whole lot of research into the hall of fame, you know, really kind of, I, I think, you know, when I set out to write about him for the, for the case book, I, you know, set out to try to set the record straight. And it was a learning experience for me to, to see, you know, I think I, I, in the decade or so since, since I'd started writing the book, I'd seen, you know, learned more about Alan, but really digging into the clips from the, from the hall of fame, uh, library and 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 other resources are you know, really eye opening and you know led led to, led to my own self assessment and 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 my reassessment of of Alan beyond the numbers of you know why his career was short. But any reaction to the Bill James stuff? Were you familiar with well, that? Well, I got to tell you, I actually <laughs> I remembered that, and I immediately went to check his Twitter feed to make sure that he didn't tweet about Dick Allen. I don't know why I felt so protective of his name a couple days ago, but I really did. And I was just like, this guy better not have even mentioned him because <laughs> I mean, this is a man, I'm talking about Dick Allen now, who was called a boy and was asked if he would carry someone's bags. And like, yes, 
this person thought they were joking, but it was 1965. Right. Like, like there were literally race riots previously, a year before, I want to say. So for people to categorize, you know, Dick Allen the way they did was absolutely nuts because then you hear stories about how he used to sing in the clubhouse and how he kind of kept to himself. So those things don't jive. Like how how is he this divisive guy, but he's also this really chill guy who can harmonize <laughs> and who <laughs> loved doo-wop music. Right. And, you know, it just, I really wish that I could just go back and just wipe some of the things that journalists said about this guy just completely off the books because it's led to years of people viewing him negatively. It's led to years of a miscategorization of his anger. And again, I don't want to be, you know, the, you know, Shakia's bringing up race, but it was the 60s and 70s. Race absolutely mattered. So if you don't take into account the experiences of, you know, these people, then why are you writing about it? I just, I don't know, I really felt like those comments have stayed, or I should say, did stay with Dick Allen forever. I imagine he never forgot it because the players know what people are saying about them and they know what's happening in the media. And you've seen for years, it's even happening now. There are players who are like, I don't even want to talk. I don't even want to talk because they're going to they're going to take what I said out of context or they're going to make it a big deal when it's not really a big deal. And Dick Allen's career just flat out was cut short due to racism. It doesn't matter how you look at it. The death threats, the writers, you know, the fans, people throwing stuff. That's really all it was. And it's important that now people like you and I tell the truth that we uplift players and others who had these experiences because I believe there's so many people who are kept out of, you know, the hall of fame and getting other accolades simply because a small set of people are like, I don't like their attitude. Right. Yeah. I I hear that all, that all makes sense. In recent years, we've seen Allen's former teammates, Hall of Famers like Goose Gossage and, and Mike Schmidt step forward to really try to set the record straight about Allen as a teammate, as a mentor, as a good guy in general. And it seems to have helped raise his profile with Hall of Fame voters and, and had led to this push that unfortunately has you know re- ran out of time due to circumstances beyond Allen's control. What do you make of the belated efforts to recognize him? first off and then what do you make of the just absolute cluster (laughs) that the hall of fame (laughs) has made out of this you know with regards to the changes in format and and the the cancellation due to the pandemic well i think first they got to be tired of getting this wrong like at at what point do you not say okay we continue to this up we continue to not get this right i just don't get it and you know, I know that the vote is supposed to be this special thing and, oh my gosh, we have to do it in person and it's so much more secure and whatever, but it is 2020 and all of baseball has a problem with being stuck in 1940 
we really got to bring it forward. We got to not just bring forward the way we view things, but the way we manage things. There's no reason why none of these things could have been conducted on Zoom. There isn't. If you can do everything else on Zoom, they're literally having court cases tried on Zoom right now. So if the courts can trust it, then obviously these Hall of Fame, you know, voters can. And I obviously thought two years ago when I wrote about Dick Allen that he had a case. Well, here we are, two years have passed, nothing has changed and Dick Allen is dead. And I personally think, yes, they're gonna do it. They're gonna, they're gonna give it to him now. It's too late, but they're going to absolutely congratulate themselves for doing it. We honored him now, he is dead. He lived to be in his 70s, right? his 70s, and you had so much time, so much time to make this right, so much time to mend the relationship, and you did it, you did it. It's, 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 it's one thing to, you know, be like, oh, well, this guy's actually cooler than I thought, and it's a whole nother to give him what he deserves, and it's maddening, it's so maddening, because it, it's, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't think it, he's not the first and I don't think he'll be the last. I don't know how we bring this process into present day. I don't know how we make it so that these views, you know, no longer keep deserving people out. I'm sure he would have loved to have been able to go, right, and be there and it just, it, it was cut short, just like his career, it, it's, it's really sad. Yeah. Sorry, I just got really. No, no, like... <laughs> no, no. I, I, that, that that's absolutely fine. I mean, I think the anger is real and and it's appropriate and and you know the sadness too. And I've you know I feel it too. And and in my role as a leading you know analyst and whatever reporter about the Hall of Fame, I often get caught, you know, in the position of having to re-explain, you know, all these like ups and downs, ins and outs of, of, of the decisions on why they make the format changes. And unfortunately, that sometimes gets viewed as me defending them. But, you know, I just to me, it, it's it's so tough because the way this particular committee was set up, you know, there are so many guys on there that are competing for, for scarcity that it becomes a math problem of like just extremely low probabilities that if you've got Gil Hodges and Dick Allen and Tony Oliva and Jim Cott and Minnie Minoso on one ballot, hearts are going to be broken no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's just no way you can get everybody in. Cause all these guys have been waiting forever. All of them have, you know, I mean, you know, I've got my opinions about them, but other, you know, other people have, have their opinions and they all have, let's just call it constituencies, you know, as far as who is backing them. Is there anything else you want, you want to add to this? Well, I, you know, yes. Um, <laughs> mm. I do want to say that, you know, Dick Allen tried to work, with baseball teams. He wanted a job and he couldn't get one. And he said that when you when you leave the game of baseball, when you're done with the game, the game is done with you. He was right. And it doesn't it, it didn't have to be that way. Right. That's all I wanted to add. Well, Shakia, obviously this is uh um there's a lot to be sad and angry and frustrated about with regards to the passing of of Dick Allen but I, I really appreciate you coming on here to to talk about this and to shed some light and some perspective on on your view because I think you just you bring a lot to the conversation in general here so thank you so much for spending some time with me today for fangraphs audio I'm Jay Jaffe
Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Glenn Williams. Glenn is joining us from Sydney, Australia, where he runs Australia's national baseball team. Fans of the Minnesota Twins may remember that Glenn played for the Twins in 2005. And Glenn, to start with, I think a lot of us on this side of the, you know, the hemisphere, this side, the other hemisphere from where you are, are jealous <laughs> because uh, we're heading into winter and uh, you are heading into summer. Yeah, absolutely, David. It's um, yeah, summer, summer here in Sydney, and the weather's been really beautiful. And and yeah, we're getting ready to kick off an ABL baseball season. So yeah, opposite opposite end of the spectrum in terms of season. So I lived that for a number of years of my life, uh, where I'd go summer in the US and then summer back here in Australia. So um, yeah, always love the summer for for a number of reasons. And we will talk ABL in a few minutes, but let's start, Glenn, with the time that you did have with the Twins, which is fairly brief. As we've talked about before, you hold an obscure and, to me, very fun big league record. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah I've hit, I guess I hit safely in every game that I played in the major leagues. So that was 13 games. So I had a nice little hitting streak going after a long time in the minor leagues um, to finally get to Minnesota or get to big leagues was something that, that I was really excited about. And then to be able to get there and do reasonably well, play, play myself into a starting position and yeah, play alongside some, you know, really great players and, and do well was, was something that that's pretty exciting. It's a bit of an obscure thing. And I guess that, uh, you know, if I had played a little bit longer and then maybe people wouldn't remember who I am. So uh, I doubt that, that there's many people out there that remember who I am anyway, but um, it's, it's kind of cool to be able to have that, that record against your name. No, I remember, Glenn, you were in the minor leagues uh, the following season, you know, maybe even two seasons after. And I said to you, hey, wouldn't it be great if you don't make it back to the big leagues? Because if you do, <laughs> inevitably you will lose this record. And you, yeah. weren't, real, you weren't keen on that idea, but it, but it turned out to be true. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I, I guess if, if we hadn't been speaking about it, I don't recall that conversation, but I think it would have been short because I was desperate to be able to get back to the big leagues. But um, yeah, to be able to, you know, finish finish my career and, and whenever I get a chance to be able to speak to people about it, that um, there's something to, to be able to hold on to, which is, which is good. So I was probably most proud of the fact that I'd stuck it out long enough to be able to get to the major leagues. There's plenty of challenging times, you know, as all minor leaguers face throughout their career. And having been in the minor leagues longer than most um, at the time I was you know relieved and excited and happy to be at the big leagues but yeah it's kind of cool to to look back at it now and and you know realize that you know I did something that that um, nobody else has done and and you know like uh, I guess it's such an obscure thing that I'm uh, doubtful that that anyone else will play I guess 14 games in the major leagues only and have a hit in every game so um, maybe it's it's Maybe it ranks up there in, in difficulty and beating like a Cal Ripken's record or uh, something like that. It's not as not as illustrious, but um, but anyway, it's it's pretty cool. And not only do you have the the record, the major league record for most games played in which you've got a hit in every every one. I looked this up earlier today, and your 425 batting average and actually I didn't write a note here. 450 something on base percentage is the highest in Twins franchise history for players with at least 40 plate appearances. So <laughs> oh, you should go. be I... famous in Minnesota as well. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and I think I only just reached the 40, by the way, as well. So maybe it was 40. I think I had 40 at-bats all up. So, yeah, I just got there, which is which is good. So uh, whoever's whoever's doing all the coordination of these stats and rules is, um, you know, obviously a Glenn Williams fan. So, uh, yeah, hopefully the, the Minnesota fans remember that. But, uh, yeah, from time to time I, I get notes. I still get some baseball cards that, that arrive at the Baseball Australia office and, they send them through to me and happy to be able to sign them and send them back and everything. So it's, it's kind of cool that people still remember. And I just, I think it probably comes from, you know, people going through their basement and finding uh, baseball cards in the back there and, and my name, you know, happens to be on them. So it's pretty cool. And you had been in the minor leagues for several years. You originally were in the Atlanta Braves system and you actually came to the United States at, at age 16 to play pro ball. That must've been quite the experience. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, I mean, I grew up loving the game. My dad played for the national team. He represented, you know, his state in the Claxton Shield, which is what the ABL title now is being played for um, for a number of years. So I grew up around the game. I loved it. It's all I remember ever wanting to do was to, um, you know, be a major leaguer and, and play baseball, which was kind of rare for an Australian kid. And, you know, I grew up around kind of the first iteration of the Australian Baseball League and I was around, you know, a lot of a lot of good players, some imports were coming in and, you know, I was bat boy on the team and then, you know, kind of a development player on the teams and all those things. So, yeah, to get a chance to be able to sign at 16 was something that I wanted to do my whole life. There was plenty of hype around it. So, you know, I was probably on the back of the wave of, you know, Craig Shipley and then David Nielsen, Graham Lloyd. Mark Edels, you know, some of those original Australian guys making the major leagues and having an impact. And then there was a lot of young guys signing. So, you know, back in, in the early 90s, it was it was kind of a bit of a hotbed that was a little bit untapped. And, you know, on the on the back of the success of those guys in the major leagues and, you know, me generating a lot of interest. Yeah, I got paid a decent amount of money to be able to come and play. And it's, it's what I wanted to do my whole life. So, you know, when you're, you're 16 years old and, you know, you get the chance to be able to live out your dream, you get on a plane bulletproof and, you know, expect to come over there and, you know, dominate and everything. So yeah, it wasn't the case for me early on. Absolutely. But yeah, love, yeah, loved every minute of it and, you know, plenty of challenges and, and, you know, chance to reflect now, you know, it's a long time ago now, but uh, chance to reflect back on it, you know, like everything you wish you had approached things a little bit differently or, you know, did things a little bit differently and things might've turned out a little, you know, a little bit better for you or whatever. But um, yeah, that being said, there was some, you know, great learning experiences for me and had a chance to be able to meet a lot of great people and, and play with a lot of great baseball players. And to, to date, there have been, I believe, 32 Australian born players in the major leagues. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Glenn. Who was mm. the first? Uh, Joe Quinn. And he was back, I think, maybe in the late 1800s or early 1900s. And then it was Craig Shipley um, after him. So Craig Shipley was the first in the modern era. And, but yeah, Joe Quinn was the very first. So um, yeah, I think he played maybe for the Cleveland Spiders. Uh, you know, some, you know, some of those uh, early, early major league teams. I hope I'm right. Am I correct on that one? No, you are excellent. I didn't think I would slip this past you, but it, <laughs> you, you are correct. It, it was 1880s in, up to 1901. I believe he was the player manager for the Spiders, and that was the team that had the worst record in in uh, in history. I don't there recall it off the top of my head, but it was unbelievably bad. Well, there we go. The Australians are renowned now for obscure records, I guess, in the major leagues. So that's good. Me and Joe Quinn right there together. Right. And right now, Liam Hendricks is, of course, coming off of a couple of great seasons with, with the Oakland A's. Just how well is he known back home in Australia? 
surprisingly and, and probably disappointingly, not as well known as he should be, you know, and to think that, you know, Liam's, you know, doing what he's doing, you know, in the major leagues, you know, over the last couple of years, especially, and, you know, this year, uh, you know, having another amazing year. So, you know, like with free agency coming up and, you know, hopefully he gets an opportunity to be able to sign, you know, like a really good contract, which generally will hit headlines. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's difficult to be able to get cut through here in the mainstream media. So, you know, baseball people know him, you know, as, as well as anyone. And, and, you know, everyone's tuning in to, to watch Oakland games, especially in the playoffs, you know, especially late in the game to be able to see him throw. So baseball people absolutely know who he is, you know, like, but I guess from a frustration standpoint, uh, the mainstream media hasn't picked up as, as much. But there's a few, few different articles. So I would imagine that, you know, if he does get a chance to sign a lucrative deal, that that will hit the headlines there. But um. But yeah, it's it's a bit of a challenging thing there. Um, you know, mainstream media is, is generally dominated here by cricket um, in the summertime, AFL and and rugby league in the winter time. So yeah, we're there. We get a little bit of coverage, but but yeah, not as mainstream as it as it should be. And are guys like Liam and say Ryan Roland Smith, Peter Moylan, Grant Balfour, do guys like that come back to Australia for your summer and get involved in baseball in any way? Yeah, so Liam, I believe he comes back, but, you know, obviously with a huge workload and a lot of travel, you know, as major league players do, um, I think he might come back, spend some time with the family, but, you know, like he might head out to a Perth Heat game and, you know, say good day to some of the guys and all those kind of things. So, you know, probably le- less much, but um, yeah, Peter Moylan is back. He's actually the pitching coach this year. Um, I saw a tweet by him a couple of weeks ago that he's finally... Um, I guess he's he's relented and realizes that he's not a pitcher anymore and, and he's going to be the pitching coach for the Melbourne Aces this year. So, yeah, he's back and, and involved. He pitched on our uh, team in the Premier 12 last year and, you know, did a great job, you know, for us internationally there. And, yeah, look, a lot of, a lot of the guys come back and, and you know, there's, there's guys that live in, in the U.S., you know, like, like Ryan and uh, Trent Olchen, you know, live in the U.S. You know, there's, there's kind of, you know, the 32 guys that have, have been, you know, over there, you probably have to guess that maybe half of them have, you know, met their wife and, you know, are living in the US and making their homes there. And, you know, when they do come back, there's, you know, varying levels of, you know, like, uh, I guess, involvement in baseball. But, you know, the guys that are back here, which is which is a great thing to see, you know, generally, you know, have a really keen interest on, you know, getting involved, you know, whether it's ABL or junior national teams or, you know, anything like that, they're, they're out and about and, um, you know, trying to do what they can to, to help out young players and, and help the game grow. And the ABL is about to start up uh, in another mm-hmm. week or so. We're speaking here on Monday in, in Boston, where I am. On t- it's Tuesday in, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the ABL, ABL, both historically and what is happening now, uh, especially with COVID-19? Yeah, so this this ABL is probably the the second iteration. So back in the you know late eighties and then through the nineties and you know like just before two thousand, the original Australian Baseball League you know was played private ownership and you know obviously you know challenging to be able to do it. A lot of great players came through that league and played. So David Nilsson was playing in his prime, you know, in that league. The guys like John Jaha. Vernon Wells, you know, a bunch of guys, Graham Lloyd, a bunch of guys that went on to have really good major league careers played in that first that first league. 
Um, and then, you know, like in the, the late, you know, 2000s, it's, you know, like kind of restarted again with Major League Baseball showing commitment to it. So, you know, the league started off and, and it's in its 11th year, I believe now, um, of the kind of the second version. And again, it's it's kind of shifted from Major League Baseball, you know, getting in and really starting it off again and, and you know, kind of funding it. Baseball Australia as a partner with that and Major League Baseball, you know, kind of pulled away from their financial investment you know, I want to say three or four years ago now and, and Baseball Australia took it over and now there's there's licensees that own the teams and operate the teams and everything. So, um, yeah, it's it's still, you know, fighting for its little, I guess, fighting for its, its spot in the Australian sporting landscape. But I think that everyone's kind of resigned to the fact that we're a little bit of a smaller niche bespoke type league that um, international broadcast is something that that is an opportunity for you know us as an Australian sport and being in you know the opposite seasons we can broadcast baseball around the world into the northern hemisphere and you know have, potentially have you know really large audiences I think the the reach last year you know through live streaming and social media was 50 million plus people which is great for a small league and then I guess COVID-19 has hit and it's been in one of those challenging ones where not many people know what's going to happen. You know, like when you rewind six months, no one knew what was going to happen across the summer. But, um, you know, there's been a couple of challenges. So Auckland, who's, you know, plays in our league, you know, out of New Zealand, you know, found found it difficult to be able to, you know, commit to playing in the season. So they pulled out of the league, you know, say a month or so ago. And we have a team of Korean players that play out of Geelong. And obviously, you know, the, the difficulty in getting, you know, 40 people into a country that, you know, currently has international travel bans in place uh, was a little bit too much for them to be able to get get in get involved. So it's a six team league this year. Will be one of the first Australian leagues to have uh, Australian sporting leagues to have a um, home and away schedule. We're one of the first to be able to have international players um, playing within it. So um, the interest from I guess professional players who you know were without a season this year in the minor leagues to come and play has been tremendous. So teams have been you know really swamped with you know some really quality players that want to come and play, and then baseball fans out there and broadcasters are really really keen to be able to to get ABL content this year. So as much as COVID nineteen has been challenging and there's there's need to be some innovation in terms of what the league looks like and you know some of the work in there it's been challenging to be able to get it up and going, but the opportunity there is is great. For our league and hopefully we can emerge from a really challenging COVID-19 period stronger than ever. And how, Glenn, would you rate the level of play? How would you compare it to the ABL to baseball, professional baseball in the U.S.? Look, it's a really, that's a really, it's a difficult question to answer because, and I think people have been trying to answer it for a while now. So I guess the best way to look at it is if you're in the minor leagues, then, you know, the, the entire roster of, you know, 25 players is, you know, pretty much consistent in terms of what level they're, they're sitting at. There's not, not too much discrepancy in it, but, you know, the ABL is different. So over a 24 man roster, there might be a, you know, like a 17 year old kid who has just committed to going to a college who's there playing on the team with Delman Young, who, you know, is a 10 year major league veteran who can come down and, and kind of dominate the league. So it's, it's kind of, I guess the level of play varies based on how early in the series it is. So if, if, you know, like teams are rolling out their best, best pitching early on in this, in the series and both teams are doing that, then the level is really high that the pitching is, is really, really good. And as the series goes on, you know, and the pitching depth is depleted a little bit, then the, the standard of, 
goes goes down a little bit. But there's instances where you know a Dylan Unsworth, who was the the pitcher of the the year last year, and you know long long time professional, was you know absolutely dominating last year for Perth, and you know he's facing Delman Young, who is you know in great shape and still an amazing hitter. And so you see matchups in the Australian Baseball League that you would challenge, you know, like would you know, rival those in, you know, potentially double A, triple A. And then, you know, you'll have matchups where there's, you know, a young kid who's at the back end of the roster, you know, going out there trying to get another young kid out. So, it, yeah, it varies as the, the thing goes along. But, you know, as an average, you'd probably say that it, it would be, you know, in and around an A-ball level, you know, and, and you know, like, but, but yeah, there's, there's a fair few variances within it. And what about the quality of Australia's national baseball team? For instance, where uh, do you sit in the world rankings? So we're currently ranked sixth in the world, which if you looked at it, I guess, man for man from a senior national team perspective, we could probably, uh, people would probably argue that that we're, we wouldn't be at that level. But um, yeah, international baseball is a, a funny thing. It's something that I love a lot just because of the, um, you know, the complexity of it and everything. But um, the baseball world rankings based on, you know, national team events across the entire you know, I guess, age groups. So from the senior national team, men's team, all the way down to our 12 and under national team. So it's a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a barometer on how well your programs are going as a whole and how committed you are to international baseball. So we've been very committed to international baseball. We've performed really well, especially at the um, 18 and under level. And at the 23 and under level, we won a, a silver medal, you know, a couple of, couple of events ago. Our senior men's team, we always compete, you know, at a level way higher than expected, you know, and when you're competing, I guess the events you're competing at, you know, Premier 12 last year, Japan was rolling out, you know, a team pretty much full of NPB superstars and Korea was rolling out KBO superstars, Chinese Taipei, CPBL superstars, you know, Team USA had a bunch of you know, some of the top prospects in the game playing for them. So the international competition is really, really high. And, you know, we're rolling out, we're rolling out guys who have had, you know, solid baseball careers. Some of them have had, you know, successful major league careers, but they're at the tail end of their career and, you know, or they're not playing as professionals anymore. So, yeah, for us to be able to have, you know, Tim Kennelly is, you know, one guy that, you know, I always reference to. He's our team captain. He had a really good career with the Phillies. He didn't make it to the major leagues, but he's come back and, and done really well in the Australian Baseball League. He's a firefighter in Perth. So he works uh, during the week, he fights fires and then he gets his training in and he plays in the ABL and does really, really well. And, you know, on the world stage, he goes out there and he can match it with anyone in terms of, you know, defensively and offensively, you know, in those tournaments, he performs really, really well. So our guys know how to play tournament baseball really, really well. They love playing for their country and, you know, they, they absolutely play above, you know, what should be expected of them, you know, internationally, which is which is something that, that I'm proud of and, and something that, you know, I love being a part of. Yeah. And one last thing, Glenn, I think it, it ties into that pretty well. What about player development, specifically with the younger age groups? I understand that there's now a relationship with uh, Driveline. Yeah, so we, you know, obviously we're, we're probably in a position where we've, it's been advantageous of us that, that we've had a lot of, lot of players go and play professional baseball. So people that are filtering back into the country, you know, some of the, the guys who have scouted for, you know, 20 plus years have had, you know, tremendous amounts of experience internationally, you know, have brought back the knowledge that they had from Major League Baseball over a number of years, which was really, really good. And we had Major League Baseball's involvement for a number of years, which was, you know, like a great catalyst in, in getting young players across overseas. But what we, the trend that we were seeing was a lot of those young players were going into professional baseball 
and the level of professional baseball was getting better and better. So, you know, some of the timelines of those guys was, you know, one to two years in professional baseball and they're out of the game at 20. You know, so some of our best and most talented, promising young players were, were not playing past kind of 22, 23. You know, so we started to really look at college as an option. And, you know, like once you start to have a look at, you know, like a college system to where, you know, professional baseball, you get the opportunity to be able to go out and draft new players every year. You get the opportunity to go and sign new players every year from all over the world. You know, in college baseball, it's almost like you recruit your roster and they're who you've got for that season. And we're very much like, you know, college baseball. We don't have the depth. We don't have the opportunity to just go out and get new guys. So we've got to make the most out of what we've got. So yeah, a number of things, you know, we really started to look at, you know, what some of the college teams were doing, you know, like what were some of the ways that we could really help our young players develop tools that would help play over there? How could we use technology to, you know, be able to kind of give them an indication of where they are and, and a bit of a contextual approach to, you know, like where they sit against their peers around the world and everything. So, um, yeah, Driveline, uh, we got in and, and I met met Kyle and uh, Kyle Bodie and, and Mike Rathwell at the ABCA uh, convention in late 2015, I think it was, or, or early 2016. And, and, you know, those guys came to Australia a couple of times and, you know, whenever we've been in the US with teams, they've been there and, and helped us and, and, you know, they're doing a, a lot of work and, and given us a lot of help in terms of how to implement technology to help help our players get better, you know, in terms of development and, and you know, exposure overseas and the like. So it's, um yeah, it's been been a really good relationship. You know, those guys are, are going from, from strength to strength and, you know, like we're, we're probably both on a, a an upwards curve. Theirs is theirs is a lot steeper than ours, but um, but they've been been right there and and you know been been super helpful in terms of of us you know stepping up our game you know for player development and the like. That was Glenn Williams coming to us from Sydney, Australia. I am David Lorela, and thanks for listening to this segment of Fangraphs Audio. Do you want me to do the Marin thing where I ask if we're recording? <laughs> is that is that a thing, man? So we're just going right is into it. Thing we started already. Man. This is the thing. Yeah, man. Then we just come in my garage and we start. Are are we good? Yeah, I think we're good. Yeah, we think we're good. Folks who have who are joining us at this time in the segment. This is uh, Fangraphs lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. I am joined by I believe it's Erstwhile Fangraphs <laughs> I was lead say it prospect yeah. analyst. Kylie McDaniel. Yep, that's me. Hi. Congrats. <laughs> Love the live sound effects. We're doing this. This is Thursday night, which would have been getaway day for winter meetings if we lived in Australia or New Zealand. There was a trade today. There was a Rule 5 draft today, and there has been some movement on the free agent market the last several days. And so Kylie and I are going to talk about some of that stuff here to wrap, or I guess to sandwich into Fangraphs audio this week. So I don't know, Kylie, what are the, what are the things that your, your scope at ESPN is, has broadened a bit uh, compared to the old job? What, how has that changed the way uh, this week washes over you? Uh, it's, I suppose a little, yeah, a little bit broader in, in terms of like the time of year when I would probably be normally be, you know, along with you starting the calls to different offices and and doing the the team prospect lists, I'm making sure I've got all the non-tenders folded into a top 100 and, you know, look, looking, I guess, a little more closely than I had in the past. Because, uh, you know, at Fangraphs, it would be like, I'd contribute to like the trade value rankings and the free agent rankings at the beginning of the offseason. But then when the tr- moves would happen, it would be, you know, Zborski, Jaffe, Clemens, like all those guys would kind of jump in and do it. And then we would move over to the prospect stuff. 
and I guess now I'm kind of doing both. So so there's like a, I guess not quite as deep on either one. Uh, but I'm also you know doing all the same prospect list stuff and diving into that. Right now we had a Zoom call this week working out exactly how we're going to do it and how we're going to change it up a bit because uh, I feel like you have to you know continue progressing in the same way that you do that the you know every year the board gets a couple extra columns. I'm like I'm not going to do it exactly how we did it last year. That's boring. We got to do something new. Right. Yeah. I'm just digital Legoing more of my life into a you know a spreadsheet that Sean makes pretty. My whole life is spreadsheets. I realized at one point that I had been in a spreadsheet of some sort like 80% of the days since I entered high school. And, and then I realized it's like basically my best friend at that point. Like I've spent way more time with Microsoft Excel and now Google Sheets than I have with any one person. Spreadsheets don't text me back either. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's start with the trade today where we had five, six players going from Tampa to Texas and vice versa. The deal, I, I suppose, in essence, centered around Nate Lowe going to Texas. The Rangers said publicly today that he is like the leader in the clubhouse, essentially, for everyday reps at first base rather than Ronald Guzman. And there are a couple other lesser prospects, a player to be named later, and uh, a slugging first baseman who went to Texas as well for a trio of interesting Rangers prospects, now Rays prospects. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on where Texas is at? They seem to be... An interesting stretch here where they've moved Lance Lynn and now moved prospects in a deal. I'm curious if you have general thoughts on the direction of that franchise. Yeah, that's the the setup of the article that uh, I will probably finish writing for uh, ESPN Plus tonight. It'll probably go up tomorrow, which would be Friday, which I'm guessing is when this will also go up. So I guess this will serve as a uh, teaser for what I'm uh, looking at writing as sort of a um, you know review of the winter meetings, I guess. Texas is sort of the main team, along with the Phillies, with the new Dabrowski news today, mm-hmm. that have sort of done the most. I guess if you were to take my last couple tweets about Texas and teasing articles where I wrote about Texas, it was basically that them and Colorado are the two teams where I don't know what they're doing. It's pretty clear that they're not competing. They don't have the money to spend out of their problem. And there isn't a clear enough talent base, like bubbling up a triple A to fix the problem. And it's not a top 10 farm system. And in many cases, it's much worse than I described it for both of those teams. And I tweeted something a couple weeks ago when I was just looking through the Fangraphs depth charts and noticed that if you take Joey Gallo out of the Texas lineup, this is, you know, pre these trades, it was like negative 0.2 war for the rest of the entire lineup. It was like hilariously bad, essentially. And, it, and you know, they're spending some money on Andrews and uh, Ruggie Odor. So it's one of those questions where it's like, well, you know, what is the direction? Is it a total teardown, take three or four years, build it back up, you know, asset collection mode, you know, lower payrolls, not super competitive, like a, a number of teams are doing as Baltimore is an example of doing it right now. They're clearly not like or weren't completely sold into that. And then once Chris Young was brought on as the GM, uh, they did the Lance Lynn trade, which is, you know, the first step that probably should have happened in the past. And there was some reporting explaining why that didn't happen. And then this trade could be seen as the same thing of sort of asset collecting at the big league level to try to help the team, but also was with a, you know, eye towards, you know, long-term value. The Lance Lynn trade to me makes sense as this guy has to be traded. He is, you know, useful in, you know, one year what his contract is. So let's get some long-term value. And that's what Dane Dunning is. And I think it was probably, if you were to do like a surplus value projection, Dane Dunning probably has, you know, a little more value if you assume he stays healthy, but that's the risk as the guy that said TJ, I don't know if he stays healthy, but this Nate Lowe trade is kind of confusing 
Because the idea of Nate Lowe, as we saw with arbitration this year, the kind of guy that gets non-tendered before he gets to, to free agency is the slugging first baseman with a bunch of strikeouts and a bunch of home runs, which is exactly what he is. He's already 25, so he's going to be right in the middle of his peak, presumably performing well when he hits arbitration in two or three years. And so they traded some real long-term value, a guy you have on your top 100, for a guy who, even if he does pretty well, might not be on this team in three years, when you have multiple potential like useful pieces, when you could just go sign CJ Cron for $3 million and get essentially the same thing. Like I don't, This doesn't make sense in the way that the Lance Lynn trade actually made sense for what they should be doing. Or you could argue that they already have a few of those types of guys on the roster. Like, if isn't sure 10 Apostles low-end outcome just a player like that very probably so yeah and then like Willie Calhoun has sort of been that too and I was also I assume that the Rangers think Nate Lowe is better than you and I both do at this point and you and I liked him a lot at one point oh yeah he he makes I, mean, I know you had uh, written in your breakdown that like you know why don't the Rays just non-tender G-Man Choi like you know sort of right. positive performer uh, and just let this guy play because he's got some long-term value and now it just looks like all right he's a you know, probably a good four platoon first baseman to sort of soft five, maybe even gives you a six season. But he just, you know, he seems like a perfectly fine player. Not anything to get excited about. Whereas at one point when he was in double A, it was like, oh, this this might be something. I think Texas has shown to be transitioning stylistically across a bunch of parts of the organization. I think that there was year-over-year turnover at the top of the player dev arm of the org for, like, what was it, three consecutive years at one point, I think. Yeah. All of those pitching injuries, which we've talked about before. There's so many pitching prospect injuries in the farm system that it's impossible to say that it's all incompetence. Like, there just has to be bad luck. Like, you and I that. couldn't create a system to get them that injured. Like, that, ha- there had right. to be some bad luck in it. Nobody can be that bad. But I think the flip side of that is that it's also it was also so bad for a while that to say that there was nothing wrong with the way they were de- developing pitchers would also be false, probably. Like, again, there's just overwhelming amount of injuries at one point. And so that stuff has shifted. And then some of the, the amateur talent acquisition stuff has changed as well, where they've gone from, you know, in this year's draft, this year's draft was weird, period. So who knows if this is a long-term strategy. But at the top of the draft the last couple of years, they've taken known college prospects, like lower variants, uh, yeah. theoretically higher floor type guys, Josh Young, Davis Wensdell, Justin Foscue, and then peppered a bunch of overslot high schoolers. It's basically like the Schwarber draft with the Cubs where they underslot or, you know, scoop up a high probability college hitter early and then go overslot with a bunch of mid six figure high school types later on. And that strikes me as sort of the way that they're approaching them in Baltimore really are just kind of going wide at the at the farm system level there's almost a quantity over individual ceiling approach that some teams are taking and i think texas is, has become one of those teams you mentioned philly as well i don't really know what to think of the dombrowski thing there are a lot of cooks in philly it seemed like they might be one of those teams who depending on what their governor decides to do as far as limiting their attendance that they might be in a position financially where they'd rather not have a season. And maybe that was why they were dragging their feet to hire an executive or two, because why do that when you're hurting financially? So you say, and there may not be a 21 season if you have your druthers. So there were some whispers about that. 
It was definitely the optics of it. The optics of it were strange. It didn't look like they wanted to hire somebody because every time it leaked that they talked to someone, they then pulled their name out and the, a new name didn't pop up. And you're like, Wait, what are they trying to do here? Because it, it doesn't even seem like they're trying to get these guys if they're interviewing them and then letting them go. Like, presumably there's something they could do to get those guys to stay because they came for the interview. There, there was a way they would say yes and they just didn't. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. But that franchise is in a tough spot because you're sort of in that the Padres before the rebuild spot or, I mean, I guess there's probably a general term for this where you have a bunch of, your roster's top-heavy, basically, with Segura and Harper and guys who are good theoretically, and there's just a, you know, a gaping hole in the bullpen that was the death of the team's competitiveness last year. So it's just hard to, to patch that hole with a bunch of Johan Quezadas. What are some of the other clubs that you have marked as behaving interestingly the last few weeks? We had to put a, a button on the on the Philly stuff. Again, pulled up the invaluable Fangraphs depth charts just as a way to see like where the where the talent base is currently, and they're in a bad spot. <laughs> like like I was thinking, like you were saying, like oh they have some really good players. Let's you know they can they can plug in a couple one two win people. Uh, you know spend thirty million dollars fill a couple holes. Doesn't have to be you know too expensive because it doesn't seem like they have an appetite to spend a ton of money. But like just in terms of what the depth charts have, they're like ten wins short of being average. Uh, and I don't think they're going to acquire 10 wins this offseason. And it's not like they have a bunch of, you know, a, a bunch more Alec Bombs or Spencer Howards coming that are going to fill those at the minimum. And like you're saying, like they need to they need to help the um, the bullpen. You know, Kyle Holder in the Rule 5 today is not necessarily going to solve any problems. Yeah, it's a tough situation. And the farm isn't good enough that if Dombrowski comes in and does the Dombrowski thing, that he can like obviously fix it. Like there's a Chris Sale trade to be made or what have you. So I'm kind of curious what the approach is going to be because I think it's a little bit of a square hole round peg thing if Dabrowski wants to stick with his script, but I'm sure this was talked through in the in the interview and, uh, you know, Philly's ownership is one of the ownership groups that is known for being, you know, pretty aggressive and, and wanting to go after, like, they don't like to just sit there and wait for a process to play out like they want to win. And also, if you want to dump money, you can't really dump money. So, like, the sort of flexibility isn't really there, which is why this is an interesting spot. Going to what you said before about uh, other teams that have been making moves, I guess we have the Mets seemingly on the verge of spending a bunch of money. Uh, it sounds like the one of the things I've noticed is that teams are not doing anything that doesn't have a deadline or a precedent next to it. So once the qualifying offer gets uh, attached to Gaussman and Stroman and sets sort of the top of the AAV, other than Trevor Bauer, of the starting pitching market, all of a sudden then everyone behind those guys falls into line and starts signing. And no other position has had that happen because nobody else accepted the qualifying offer and then set the market. And then after non-tenders, you saw, you know, a couple, a couple trades, a couple things happen just because that deadline shook out a couple more things. We're waiting for the top of the market, this sort of three-year deal, the two-year deal with a big AAV to sort sort of set the top of the market or, or, you know, set a baseline for where the top 10 free agents, you know, think their value is. That hasn't been set yet. And it sounds like all of these McCann uh, Mets rumors, uh, which has been reported by everyone and I guess kind of heard by everyone, they're all trying to throw their hat in the ring of, yeah, I heard that too. I would guess it's going to end up there. And all of the things I've heard is the same things as the reporting that it's four years and somewhere around 10 million a year, which is you know, pretty aggressive that if he signs for $40 million, that will then sort of not set, but it gives you a benchmark to then set the rest of the top of that market. And that may then get going. The only other sort of deadline that is tied to anything is the KBO and MPB guys, uh, you know, Sugano and Hassan Kim, Arahara, a couple other guys, they just opened their, their windows for the posting. And so that'll take whatever it is, 27 to 28 days now that we're 
inside of the 30. That's the next thing that is like forced to happen. But between now and opening day, there's no other deadline that's going to make anyone do anything. And I think, as you said, there's like a lot of teams that are waiting to hear how many games are there going to be? Is there going to be a DH? How many fans can we have? What's our revenue going to be like? When is spring training going to start? Like there's enough unknown that teams will just sit there and wait. And so if spring training is also going to start late, you might not see guys, you know, really sign at the top of the market until February or March, unless the Mets, the White Sox, the Blue Jays, these teams that have money that are rumored to be in on everybody, unless they go out and decide to aggressively go spend at the top of the market, set the market, and then other teams feel comfortable jumping in even if they don't know what their revenues are, they, they all have like a, you know, a bottom line that they can, that they're free to spend right now. In some cases, that's, you know, no money above what they've already committed to. In some cases, some teams have some money. They're all being very cagey about it. But that's just sort of the part of it that I'm watching, which is what market forces are there forcing teams to do something or setting a market so that they feel comfortable doing something. And they're not all there yet. But I think there's a couple more dominoes that could kind of get things going. And I, you know, obviously hope they happen soon, but for all I know, it might be well into next year before the, the, those dominoes fall. All right, let's touch on Rule 5 for a couple minutes and then we'll split. You mentioned before we hopped on that you thought it was like any other Rule 5 for the most part. And I thought it was interesting that a bunch of guys who had TJ in 2019 and basically haven't pitched at all for a year and a half went. Akil Badu had, you know, was a position player who had Tommy John. Was there anything else that you had just general thoughts about the rule five. There are, there are people in baseball who thought that because of expanded rosters, that there'd be more draft and stash type guys. I guess there were a couple Pittsburgh took two of them, Jose Soriano, Luis Oviedo. I'd classify both of them as that a bunch of minor league rule five guys. One obviously is, you know, any rule five standouts for you? Uh, not really. I, in the course of like preparing for this article that, you know, I'm about to write, uh, I was hoping that there would be some trends. I mean, I guess another thing that we don't know is how big the rosters are going to be. If they're going to be 26 or 28 or 30 or, you know, how, however that'll play out if this year ends up being as weird as last year was in some ways. Then I was wondering, you know, wondering, oh, is it going to be more players picked, less players picked? You know, more stash guys, more guys that have been seen in instructs or, you know, guys that were at the possibly have their data and video from the alternate side. Or, you know, what's the trend going to be? And then after kind of diving into it, I was just sort of like, yeah, no, I think it's pretty much just the same as every other every other Rule 5 draft, which is we got some middle relievers, some long relievers, some bench slash platoon guys that are sort of like high probability, you know, fours to soft fours and, you know, sort of the two to eight scale sort of backups. And then you got guys that are sort of like injury or otherwise because far away from the big leagues, wild card, you know, lottery tickets that you're hoping to stash and that can, you know, give you 12 low leverage innings during the season and stay on the roster and not be a disaster and mop up time. You get to hold on to them and grab a prospect, which I mean, we've seen this happen a lot and very rarely actually work out to where the roster spot and the prospect value gleaned from keeping the guy actually works out. And so I, I feel like the most effective way to do this is just try to get a middle reliever or try to get a bench guy. And then if you get lucky, that guy turns into a late inning reliever or like a fringe starter, like you're, you're Shane Victorino. So yeah, that, I guess that's sort of the, the, you know, the more broad, you know, Mickey Mouse lens that I'm looking through this one. And then, you know, we can go through any one of the players you want. There's like plenty of these guys I've seen before. Or I have some familiarity with, but that, I don't know. It just feels like everybody fell into one of those two buckets. Right. Yeah. It is a couple draft and stash guys. And I like the idea of taking people who have had, injury issues injured players don't occupy a roster spot in the same way that mediocre ones do yes so i like the idea of a high ceiling play like a zach pop even though you haven't seen him since for almost two years or whatever it's been but yeah we have the the younger draft and stash type guys there are the players who are spillover from orgs who are good at developing pitching the dodgers the yankees the astros bunch of their players went then you have the random pop-up guy uh like 
Will Vest. Will Vest in, in the Tiger system had good numbers a couple of years ago. He was like the bottom of the board and then had a big time velocity spike, was sitting in the mid to upper 90s during instructional league. Someone told me today they couldn't believe that he wasn't 40 man. So uh, the Mariners picked there at 12, Will Vest from the Tigers. Seems like an uh, interesting one. And then, yeah, you mentioned it. It's, it's a bunch of the spot starter types. And the the underlying trait du jour is uh, fastball carry. So you've got Gray Fenter uh, from Baltimore going to the Cubs. And then Daniel Nunez from the Mets going to the Giants. Paul Campbell from the Rays going to the Marlins. These are all like big-time spin or their axis is effectual in a, in a very specific way. Like this is the the way that teams are looking for uh, like a skill that pitchers can do. So, all right, Kai Tom, mm-hmm. are we stupidly, is this one of those, this is staring us in the face type guys. I'll give you a minute to pull up like his player page or something like that. Oh no, I, I know him. I actually saw him in uh, triple a when, or I guess not last oh, year. Oh, for sure. But... You know, who Kai Tom is, he was a prominent college player. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, this feels like it's in it's in like the Mark Payton area where it's like no huge tools, not big, not sexy in any way, but just sort of gets it done. And is he going to get it done enough to be like an emergency fifth outfielder for a guy or is he going to be like a decent fourth outfielder? Like, that's the question. And that's, you know, pretty small margin for error and not a lot of, you know, upside. But, you know, I guess that guy every now and then turns into like Nori Aoki and is like a soft five for a couple of years. So, yeah, I think he's in that like that that broad area where. There's probably a couple guys at any given time that are Rule 5 eligible that are reasonable picks. I just love that high wire act of getting a spring training length tryout, essentially, to try to make an active roster. As a hitter, the small sample size that you're dealing with to perform, you know, it's just much more interesting than than on the pitching side. But people need pitching depth, and so most of the Rule 5 is just going to be pitching from now until the end of time. And going back to the uh, the sort of interesting strategic part of this that I like, as you mentioned, the sort of uh, rules to hold a player when they're injured, uh, you can take a guy that's going to be out for the whole season and then keep him for 90 days in 2022 and get his rights. And so there's like some value in doing that, where if a guy, you know, like Zach Pop has injury risk, but he's already pitched in the upper levels, it's like, well, all we got to do is if he's like a whole injury problem, we just got to keep him for, you know, much less time than normal. And the risk is all that he won't be out there, which is almost a good thing in terms of getting his rights. Whereas if the guy hasn't, you know, played in full season ball, like, you know, a guy I liked was Oakland's Jordan Diaz, who hasn't played in full season ball. Like, that's a crazy risk to take. Like, that guy's almost certainly not going to stick. But if it's like this guy's pitched in relief in double A and a little bit of time in triple A or, you know, whatever it might be, it's like, oh, well, the injury risk, well, I can deal with that. Like, that, that, that giving me some variance isn't scary, and in a way it could be good. I would say the other thing, which comes back to Danny Jimenez, which is a, a, a sort of loophole to the rule that I found when I was working in Baltimore in 2010, 2011, which is if a guy gets picked and returned in the Rule 5, if you take him again and then try to outright him off the roster, he can choose to be a free agent. And then if he liked his opportunity and how he was treated, he'll probably re-sign with you and you can then get his rights free and clear. So a previously picked or previously outrighted Rule 5 pick actually has some hidden value as well. And so I would say injured players and previously picked or previously outrighted players are an interesting pool to sort of splash around in. Kyler McDaniel, thank you for, for coming on the pod. It was good talking with you. And... Hey, I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, when somebody explained to me the rules, I was like, wait a minute. So we could. And I explained it. He's like, yeah, no, we talk about that every year. And, you know, it's not always a good candidate. Uh, I will also uh, end with a, with a quick joke here, which is the only time I like to hear Will Vest is when you're talking about my stock options. <laughs> and with that groaner, <laughs> yet another segment of Fangraphs Audio has come to a close. 
This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show and would like to give back, the best way to support is to purchase an ad-free membership at Fangraphs.com. You can also always help by telling your friends about the show or leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for listening.